Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biographies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Ronald L. Lewis about his biography, co-written with Robert L. Zingrando, of the NAACP leader Walter F. White, entitled Walter F. White, the NAACP's Ambassador for Racial Justice. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, we're glad to have you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, Well, I was uh, trained in African-American history and uh, taught African-American history for 11 years at the University of Delaware. Then I moved to West Virginia uh, University in 85, and I retired in uh, 2008. What was it led you to undertake this book in your retirement? What led me to this book was my uh, Ph.D. advisor, who had been working on Walter White for many years and had uh, completed most of the primary research and then uh, needed some help in completing the writing and bringing it into uh, publication. And so that's where I came into this project. It's a very interesting project because, as you explain in the book, Walter White is a person who has a very significant presence in you know 20th century American history. And yet, as you explain, the way that we that he's been interpreted by his contemporaries and by people writing about him uh, after uh, his death in 1955 has really distorted our understanding of his contributions and accomplishments at a very pivotal point in uh, the history of American race relations. Yeah, Walter White was probably the most uh, prominent African-American civil rights rights figure in America uh, for 25 years before his death in 1955. And yet he's largely been forgotten, and and the younger generation uh, don't know his name at all, doesn't know his name, wouldn't know who he is. So this is one of the reasons why I was interested in coming into it, because... uh, you know, this this is the sort of the person, most famous person you never heard of before. So you write about this role that he plays, and and one of the things that impressed me in reading your book was just how multifaceted he was, and 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 how he was not just a uh, the executive director of the NAACP for several years. He also was a contributor to the Harlem Renaissance. He was a very prominent. Uh, activist in terms of issues regarding race relations during the Second World War. He, he really had, was involved in a, in a lot of different venues at, 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 a, at a very uh, important time. He was a Renaissance man, a Harlem Renaissance man. <laughs> and, uh, and, it's, uh, and it's true. He, he's had his hand in everything. And he saw that as part of his, as part of his job. He was chosen because that's the kind of person he was. 
he, uh, I mean, chosen to be executive secretary of the NAACP because the NAACP's mission in those days was to bring the cause before the American people and to lobby uh, legislators to, to, uh, for more friendly legislation to African Americans and uh, bring litigation where possible. So this, this took him into many different uh, venues, that, uh, and he, he excelled in all of them. I was wondering if we could begin discussing his life in a bit more detail by talking about uh, his background. I mean, who, uh, from where does Walter White come, and how does he go from his beginnings to uh, becoming this very prominent uh, activist at, at a surprisingly young age? Yes, for all for all the things that he's done and uh, how successful his career was, most people were fascinated by his his color, the fact that he was cl- he was uh, close to being white, and so the issue of his his ancestry is uh, sort of core to to how Walter White is perceived and interpreted. His father George was very light skinned. Uh, slave. He probably was of mixed ancestry somehow. Uh, he finished the eighth grade, entered uh, Atlanta Prep, and uh, then uh, re- and where he received a diploma, and then attended Atlanta U for one year. Uh, he had to quit for financial reasons and went to work for the post office, which would have made him probably upper middle class in the black community of Atlanta. His mother, Madeline, uh, her father was Augustus Ware, who was a physician and a white physician. And her mother was a slave. Her mother uh, was believed to have been the daughter, at least in the family. Uh, It was always said that she was the daughter of William Henry Harrison. So the ninth president of the United States. So, anyway, she was very light-skinned. She was only probably a quarter black. Madeline had assistance from this doctor Ware to attend Clark University in Atlanta, and then she became a teacher. So she, she and George married in, what, 1882, settled in Atlanta, had seven children who lived. All of them uh, attended Atlanta U, a relatively happy home life. And uh, Walter sort of grew up uh, bond over by a lot of sisters. He uh, came uh, of age when Jim Crow was being finalized in Atlanta uh, in the Atlanta race riot of 1906. he, he says in his in his autobiography that it, that he finds out who he was, and of course what that means is he became well conscious of the fact that he was of Afro ancestry, however limited. It has, you know, a hundred years later that doesn't doesn't sound like uh, much, but in in Atlanta or in the South at that time. The, you know, the phrase, one drop of black blood made you black. And that's how it operated. So his identity was sealed by that, whether he 
you know, whether he not he wanted to be white or not, as some critics later charged. Uh, Atlanta didn't uh, finance high school for, for blacks. So Walter White went to Atlanta U uh, through the prep department and then uh, graduated from Atlanta University in 1916. He was the class president. So during the summers and uh, and after he graduated, he worked for the Standard Life Insurance Company, which is a black-owned company. Um, and he worked there f- for them off and on, and uh, traveling in the backcountry selling insurance policies to black families. So he, you know, I saw the urban middle-class uh, families, and where he lived on Houston Street was sort of a semi-integrated street, really. Uh, so it's a very, very uh, welcoming neighborhood. And he went from so around the city plus out into the rural countryside. So he saw all, all levels of black society, we'll put it that way. After he could have, actually the whole family could have passed for white. And none of them ever did. In fact, they became strong race people. And all of them did. And so, again, if you're writing the history of Walter White and you see the criticisms of him later on, uh, and you know this becomes a uh, central feature of understanding who he is, uh, why they chose to re- to be black rather than white, which would have been the easy course, is you know is the core question in in uh, their life history and and Walter White's history. Anyway, he tried to start an NAACP chapter when he was at Atlanta U. Uh, It didn't, he couldn't find enough members, and so that failed. But he was more successful a year later uh, when he uh, helped to start the NAACP chapter in Atlanta. Uh, James, he he called the... uh, He called the NAACP headquarters in New York, and James Weldon Johnson, the executive director, came to, or executive secretary, came to Atlanta in 1917 to address his supporters, and White shared the platform with him. So back at NAACP headquarters, Johnson and Du Bois noticed White's success, and they talked about him. And, and and Du Bois, of course, had taught at Atlanta U, and was familiar, uh, you know, with with Atlanta. So anyway, they asked White to come and join join him at the uh, at the headquarters in New York City, as a as assistant executive secretary. And his father, you know, you might think would have encouraged him to stay with Standard Life Insurance Company, which he would have been very successful at because he was a very good organization man. Um, But he didn't. He encouraged him instead to go uh, to New York and be and to serve the race, as he put it. White and White did. He went to New York and arrived in January 1918. And that's where he stayed the rest of his life. 
You describe his activities during this period, and while he addressed a range of, of issues, there was one issue in particular that he became most associated with in terms of his activism and his campaigns to change, and that was his uh, anti-lynching efforts. And I was wondering if you could describe a bit uh, what he did during those campaigns, because I found it a very interesting and and and, and very uh, uh, harrowing uh, d- description of of what he was doing, he, uh, the, the, you know, his campaign often, you know, he was undertaking all these efforts at, at very at considerable personal risk. Oh, yes, indeed. That's his very first. He was he was only there a few weeks. In fact, when he became involved in this anti-lynching campaign, now that was his first major project at the NAACP, and it became a decades-long campaign. When White arrived at the NAACP. In uh, 1918, African-Americans were sort of being confronted by a rising tide of white racist violence uh, intended to keep them down in sort of the quasi-slavery of segregation, which was just, you know, at that time was being finalized. We tend to think of it as always being that way, but there is a period during Reconstruction when African-Americans had been freed but segregation had not been strictly imposed as a formal system of Jim Crow. And this process of pushing blacks back into the box of segregation and controlling the race control, really, um, was just coming to a close. And, and lynching was a way of, of intimidating blacks back into uh, that box. Between 1882, just to give you an example, between 1882 and 1968, there was a total of over 4,700 lynchings in the United States. The vast majority of these people were African Americans or white people who sided with African Americans. I mean, Georgia and Alabama alone had nearly 1,200 lynchings just between the two. And these lynchings peaked between 1880s and the 1920s. What, what White did was travel incognito, and as you say, at great personal danger. Uh, he investigated 41 lynchings and eight race riots, urban race riots. Give you, I'll give you an example. Uh, passing as a white reporter, he went to Helena, Arkansas in 1919. Now bear in mind, he'd be a very young man still, 1919, uh, where these heavily armed white men and, and over 500 National Guard have been called up to round up these black sharecroppers union. And lynchings and shootings left something around t- between 25 and 100 dead. I have no idea. That's a wild estimate, but that just shows you the scale of it. Most of the people, most of the black activists on the ground put it over 100. At any rate, there's another uh, 80 or more black men who were sentenced to long prison terms, allegedly because they were planning to massacre white people, uh, which is a trope that goes back into slavery days, of course. Local whites blamed the trouble on NAACP agitators. So the NAACP... um, save these men 
who were imprisoned uh, when the Supreme Court ruled they had not received a fair trial. So the NAACP got, got into the litigation business early, and White uh, was instrumental in, in doing that because what he did when he went to cover these lynchings uh, was to write extensive reports. And just show you how ex an example of how dangerous uh, these, this was, White spent several days in Arkansas where he spoke only to whites so that he would avoid putting African-Americans in danger. A black, a black man who didn't know who White was pulled him aside one day and informed him that his life was in danger. And that I don't know who you are, but I figured if the white folks are against you, you must be a friend of ours. And White immediately boarded a train for Memphis. And, and the following day, White learned that the Memphis NAACP branch office had received a report that he had been lynched. So White went on, went on to uh, publish or write and investigate reports of all these lynchings and provided the data and the kind of information needed to press for uh, Congress for an anti-lynching bill, which they pushed, NAACP pushed, and Walter White personally lobbied for for decades unsuccessfully. The following, the following day, anyway, when White learned this, uh, he had, he had uh, the whole office had been terrified. In fact, they were flying the flag that a man had been lynched, which, which is what the uh, NAACP did in those days. They flew a black flag. White also, though, investigated uh, eight northern urban race riots. You know, the great migration that began during World War One and lasted through the 20s, uh, oh, several million African-Americans flee the South for northern and midwestern cities. These cities became, well, racial tinderboxes like Chicago, which was a magnet for desperate migrants who took, they, who took jobs in the stockyards and places where whites went on strike in the summer of 1919. After a week of arson and bloodletting, 23 blacks and 15 whites were dead. Over 500 had been admitted to the hospital wounded. A white went to Chicago and put on work clothes, mingled with the strikers to gather intelligence. He then filed reports of his, the riot investigations just as he did with the lynchings. And an interesting story that he tells to go along with that is when he was going to Jesse Binga's bank, which is a black bank in, in the south side uh, ghetto. Uh, and while he was walking down the street, a black guy uh, thought he was white and took a shot at him, which just barely, barely missed him. So those were very exciting times. And they, and he did it. I mean, did that 41 times in the heart of the South. Just, so his, he used his race in that sense as a shield, but he could have been easily been exposed. In fact, when he was in, a, when he was in Helena, Arkansas, uh, the conductor on the train 
said, "Well, you're leaving. You're leaving too soon. They're they're looking for a a, a yellow nigger uh, who's passing for white. And when they find him, he'll be a goner." And so, and he did just make it in uh, in time because he came to the railroad station uh, probably minutes after the train pulled out. Given all of his travel and all of his, you know, activities, his investigations, the the reports of publishing, it, it, it's it's hard to believe that he found time for uh, his life in New York City. And yet, you describe this is also the period where he marries his first wife, Gladys, and becomes a, uh, a, a an author and a contributor to the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah, he did. Uh, he was uh, he embraced the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, this was a well, well. Harlem grew during this period and became probably the largest black population uh, outside of the South, you know, in the United States. And Harlem was a vibrant uh, place. It they it um, uh, it grew during this period and it and it had a had its own kind of inner dynamic. And it would be the first time. You know that a black community in the in a northern city would have had that kind of of uh, of a, a dynamic. It became uh, the cultural center of Black America, really, and, and the cultural movement known as the New Negro Movement embraced the idea that which is which was developed by these intellectuals in Harlem during the Renaissance. Um, the New Negro movement embraced the idea that development of black culture would allay uh, racial friction by demonstrating the humanity of African Americans, and this would then force whites to abandon their racial stereotypes and deal with them as people. There's a lot written, both fiction and poetry and plays and music and so on, uh, that uh, articulated this view and hope, I uh, was probably asking too much. But David Levering Lewis, the, he's the famous biographer of Du Bois, uh, called, it the civil, called it civil rights by copyright, this, this approach. Uh, Harlem was alive with his intellectual ideas anyway, and the activity, this kind of, this exciting hub of activity, Walter White fully embraced. And he really, he consciously intended to join with his own contributions. Uh, there's another pressure on him to do this because just by being in the NAACP as a, as a uh, uh, as an executive in the NAACP at this time would have been pressure because most of his peers, senior peers, were were themselves accomplished authors. I mean, James Weldon Johnson was probably the most famous black author of his day. I can't even tell you how many books he's written, but, you know, most famously, the autobiography of an ex-colored man, uh, God's Trombones, Black Manhattan, and and quite a few others. He was also a lyricist, musical lyricist, and the editor of New York Age. So he, he was a very accomplished literary figure. And recognized as such, uh, W. E. B. Du Bois was in the office at the time. He was the editor of the Crisis, 
but he was also had also had a PhD in history from Harvard, and had written uh, the history of Black Reconstruction, Dark Water, Voices from the Veil, and most famously maybe the Souls of Black Folk, and a whole and a lot of other things, of course. And Mary White Ovington, who was a uh, you know one of the founders and uh, board leader on the board, uh, had written Half a Man, Status of the Negro in New York. Herbert Seligman was director of publicity. He had written The Negro Faces America and was a reporter for the New York Evening Post. And, well, these people, you know, they had they were dynamic themselves, and Walter White was, had enough uh, verve in him that he was going to be just like that and didn't want to be left behind. So he jumped right into it. Uh, and Walt, over his career, Walter White wrote innumerable articles for magazines like, I mean, prominent magazines like the New Republic, The Nation, Harper's, and literally countless newspaper pieces. He also wrote, in the, just in the 20s, three novels. Uh, Fire in the Flint in 24, Light in 26, both of them published by Knopf. And, and a novel called uh, uh, Blackjack, which, which was lost. We don't know the story of how that happened, but it was just lost and, and recovered, well, not very long ago. Uh, but all of these novels were on racial themes and, and racial identity, racial inequalities, and so on. And again, like the rest of the movement, it intended to highlight the uh, the inequalities in America. He all, in 1929, he also published a uh, a classic, still in print, uh, "Rope and Faggot," which is about the lyn- about lynching in America, and there he sort of dissects uh, uh, the whole the whole uh, meaning behind what what's happening when when a white man lynches black. Uh, you know, in the 40s, he actually published two more books. One was A Rising Wind uh, in 45, which um, uh, was about decolonization in the world after World War II and freeing Europeans and colonies all through Africa and elsewhere. And he was he was an advocate for decolonization. So he wrote this book basically saying that Avoid the next war uh, by decolonizing. These, pe- these people will be free. So do it now and you'll avoid the war. And then in 48, he published A Man Called White, his autobiography. So he's a, he's a very accomplished guy. He had a lot of help, uh, none other than H.L. Mencken, editor of American Mercury and the famous uh, Serbic critic for the uh, Baltimore Sun uh, befriended him and read his manuscripts and helped him find a publisher and and uh, and they remained friends. So Walter White was you know deeply enmeshed in that. And if you look at just a short list of who list of writers and painters and poets and musicians and actors, 
uh, who were involved in the Harlem Renaissance is really um, impressive. And yet he very quickly, uh, he has this literary career, but in some respects, it gets a little sidetracked by the fact that uh, at the uh, start of the 1930s, he becomes the executive secretary of the NAACP. How does he become the executive secretary? And what are some of the challenges he faces in his early years uh, in that office? Well, James Weldon Johnson um, befriended uh, White. He took him under his wing. He became his mentor. Uh, he, but but he was a tremendous producer himself. He he was so involved in, in 1929. He finally had to take a leave uh, of absence for for his health, and White took over the post and took over m- most of his duties anyway. Uh, he officially resigned during that year to go to Fisk. Uh, to be what writer in residence, and White then was appointed by the board to as full time executive secretary in uh, the winter of 1931. He there are rumors abounded, and White had his enemies. Uh, he's as most prominent men do. He. He ruffled some feathers. He was a very genial person, but he was—he was, he was also—he—he uh, he also said what he thought. And there were rumors that he pushed out uh, that Johnson was pushed out by White. They, he could never really counter those or dispel those rumors, uh, even though he continued to rely on Johnson. And Johnson—he uh, and Johnson remained very good friends. White uh, even appointed him to a uh, new administrative committee that had oversight over Walter White. So, you know, there's it's debatable uh, whether or not he did that. But this is this is the first. This is where it begins. Uh, the r- rumors in, inside the NAACP. There were a lot of uh, high functioning people who who were ambitious. And uh, this is something that the outside uh, periodically saw when one of these, uh, when one of the internal fights broke out into the public, but uh, generally they tried to keep under wraps and we don't think of them that way. Uh, We think of them all as dedicated simply and solely to civil rights. And they were, but not solely, they were also ambitious men of their own, and of course, you actually probably need people like that if you if you want to run an organization that is ambitious about its mission. But a big problem confronting White immediately when he took office, even while he was acting as executive secretary, was that Hoover appointed a Republican. Uh, from North Carolina, Judge John J. Parker, to the Supreme Court in 1930, and uh, resubmitted him as a candidate for approval uh, to the Senate. White led the fight against his approval. Parker had uh, remarked back during a campaign, an earlier campaign, that blacks should not participate in political life. 
because it was bad for them and bad for society. Literally said that. So Parker was also anti-labor. And Walter White forged an alliance with those uh, labor forces arrayed against the appointment of, of Parker by Robert Wagner of New York. Uh, he did it in order to uh, form a coalition to defeat Parker's nomination, which they did. And it was said that the NAACP had come of age uh, with the fight over Parker. Because bear in mind, the NAACP was a lobbying organization. It was built on the three L's, lobbying, litigation, and legislation. And this was, so this was viewed as a national level uh, win. And, and so internally, they thought of the NAACP as their phrase, coming of age. Other problems, though, he immediately faced, of course, was a depression, caused by the depression anyway, and that is the finances of the organization. This is a major problem all through the depression. It, uh, you know, the devast devastating unemployment, blacks would have been unemployed two, three times more than whites, uh, even though they were, the white population would have been unemployed, what, 20, 25%. Yeah, there are, then there are this collapsing stock portfolios and all the other problems created by the depression, uh, and it, it had destroyed their budget. It it cut, uh, you know, the membership uh, was depressed and declined. Uh, many philanthropists who had the money, uh, saw, you know, had to tighten their purse strings because of the collapsing stock market. And, uh, of course, uh, donating organizations uh, also had to tighten up because their portfolios were collapsing just as well. Now, this is something all this alone would be daunting. But then to keep the organization moving forward on its mission, uh, in this context was a, was a major accomplishment all by itself. I was Another, also, uh, sorry, I was, I was thinking it was also fascinating to think about how, in addition to that, you have the, you know, the challenge being posed by the communists. And, and, and that really comes out with the whole episode of the Scottsboro trial. Yes, the Scottsboro, the Scottsboro Boys trial, 1960. 1931 to 37, uh, they dragged on for quite a while because they were tested uh, in the courts uh, or appealed in the courts. Uh, you know, involved nine black youths who were falsely accused of raping two white women on a train, hoboing. Uh, each trial had uh, all white juries, and uh, eight of the boys were convicted and sentenced to death. Communist Party USA uh, took up the cause, and they got there before Walter White. In fact, Walter White said that the thing he hated worst was that he had that the NAACP had gotten to the to the boys before he could. And later, that became another criticism against Walter White. 
It was an unfair criticism because he fought with the board about going immediately to see them in jail in Birmingham. But the board didn't want him to go because he uh, they thought it was too dangerous. So they delayed and delayed, and the, and the international labor defense lawyers for the Communist Party uh, had already gotten the commitment by the time White got there. They uh, appealed to this, these cases, you know, once they were lost, to uh, to the to the Supreme Court, and and won reversals because uh, you know the Constitution forbade states from barring citizens from juries because of their race. And Alabama, where the case was tried, um, of course, barred blacks from serving on juries. So the NAACP during this time was in direct competition with the CPUSA, or Allegiance of African Americans generally. Uh, the NAACP was a reformist organization. They wanted to reform society. And CP, uh, of course, wanted uh, was a revolutionary organization, and they wanted to simply replace the system itself. So this had a, this had more of a sympathetic hearing in the 1930s during the depths of the Depression. It seemed it sounded more reason. It sounded like a reasonable solution. White charged that the Communist Party was really more interested in propaganda than saving the Scottsboro Boys. And uh, oh, and so, you know, they they were back and forth on multiple levels. It wasn't just the boys, but the CPUSA also went, af went for uh, funds that the uh, NAACP had traditionally relied upon, you know, major donors, reform organizations who donated money to the cause. And the CP went after those same funds, and they competed with the NAACP for those funds because they took up the cause of blacks. Uh, finally, anyway, in 1935, uh, left-leaning groups formed what's called the Scottsboro Defense Committee, and the NAACP participated. And so this took off uh, some of the heat uh, from the NAACP for seeming to not be involved or having been hesitant uh, to be involved in the Scottsboro cases. There is at the same time this is going on, then you have white-faced a test of wills with W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, who eventually resigned in 1934. Du Bois was the editor of the crisis he claimed it was independent of the NAACP administration, even though the association paid the bills. So this caused a lot of, of uh, consternation within the NAACP because it viewed the crisis as one of its organs, and Du Bois saw it as an independent entity unto itself. And Du Bois himself could be, of course, a difficult man. As, as all, even his friends uh, allowed. The, uh, if the depression that caused these financial problems for the NAACP um, have forced it to uh, the association to tighten up its administration, 
because there were money leaking out in places they couldn't afford it to you know, couldn't afford to afford it to leak out of. And for example, in nineteen thirty one, Du Bois resisted White and the board when they tried to assert some authority over him. And and what Du Bois did was to lead a little minor rebellion among senior staff people by having them sign a letter he wrote uh, saying or blaming White and the board for mismanagement of funds. And that's why they couldn't pay for the crisis. Well, tensions escalated after that. And uh, the uh, board asked Du Bois to submit the crisis to White's control. He absolutely refused. Also, Du Bois was moving closer to the Marxist position as a strategy for racial progress. And of course, the uh, the board would not hear of that either. The final straw came in 1934, though, when Du Bois opened the crisis to discussion articles from outside and and at White's insistent his own submission of the merits of self-segregation in mobilizing African-American resources during the Depression. The NAACP was definitely in no mood to entertain self-segregation at a time when it, uh, uh, when it was pushing for integration. And, of course, that was its sole purpose for being. The internal conflict caused a lot of public interest in this squabble, internal squabble. And, of course, and predictably, reformers sided with white and more, you know, left or left-leaning people sided with Du Bois. So that brought some heat down on White as well, because when when Du Bois resigned in 1934, uh, he was uh, they these people blamed White for push, pushing him out as well. He Du Bois, of course, went to Atlanta U after that and remained there until uh, he came back in 1944. He was pushed out of Atlanta U uh, by then by by the president of the university for just because he he didn't like what Du Bois was doing in his politics. And he came back to the NAACP between 1944 and 48 uh, before they fired him again. For similar reasons as in 1934. (laughs) So there's a lot of, you know, drama going on in the NAACP. And people watched, you know, know, we've got to keep in mind, too, that the NAACP was the organization for civil rights in the United States. There were many people interested, you know, and fought for civil rights. There were a lot of smaller organizations but they would, but but the national organization was the NAACP. So everybody looked to them, friends and enemies. I thought that really came across when you were talking when you were in your book when you were talking about his relationship with the Roosevelts of the 1930s. How and and I, I was thinking about how that that must have given him a certain advantage when it came to dealing with some of these internal issues and maintaining the NAACP stature against some of these external challengers as well. 
Yes. Well, you know, and that's that's the other thing. They critics often attack White for being nothing but a PR person, but that's a uh, that is not too much of a diminishment if you have Eleanor Roosevelt as your friend, and she is involved in helping you get to the highest levels of power in the country to have your case heard. That's that was one of the missions of the NAACP. So the board loved it because that's what the organization was about. There were a lot of other, like I say, there were other organizations and there were other ideologies out there, but none of them could garner enough support to become a dominant player or a counter prevailing weight against the NAACP. Therefore, they were tended to be, to always be, you know, rancorous toward anything that the NAACP did. For example, this this squabble between White and Du Bois and the CPUSA uh, all wrapped up because Du Bois tended would eventually become a communist, of course, uh, sided frequently with the CPUSA, and also and so here's one of their officers siding with their enemies. Well, this is indicative of the larger issues that were involved, which was. Um, an intellectual dispute, really, whether the problems of African-Americans was based on race or class, which is, of course, still an argument. It's the best way to get an argument going in class, uh, even today. (laughs) And, you know, for example, Abram Harris, prominent economist of the day, was left-leaning. Their protest was fine if political advancement was the goal. But the problems of the Depression were economic, and blacks were unemployed. And what is the NAACP going to do about that? Well, the NAACP was never formed to deal with that kind of issue. It was dedicated, as I said, uh, strictly to reversing inequality through litigation, lobbying, and legislation. How could it now become a class-based organization and deal with these kinds of economic issues? especially during the Depression, when it had no strap for resources. So this is a, uh, you know, an ongoing, it's not a clean kind of thing where everybody's behind you. There are lots of people nipping at your heels. And Walter White, being the figurehead of the NAACP during all this period, uh, is the guy who took most of the heat. He also, though, was the guy that became the go-to guy for getting just getting things done. Not long-term things, but even momentary things, but important. For example, in uh, uh, Marian Ander- when Marian Anderson uh, was turned down by the Daughters of the American Revolution uh, to use Constitution Hall for a Easter Sunday uh, concert in 1939, Walter White led the publicity campaign denouncing the DAR and then contacted his friend Eleanor Roosevelt and his friend, the Secretary, the Secretary of Interior, Harold Ickes, about using Lincoln Memorial for the concert. And they, being friends, jumped at the chance. So 75,000 instead of a Thousand people showing up, seventy-five thousand people showed up 
at the feet of Abraham Lincoln, and NAACP carried it live. Secretary of Interior Ickes himself introduced Marion Anderson, and Walter White closed. So the people who always carped after White said he was just a publicity seeker, and those who uh, supported him said, here you go. This is, this is how public relations pays off. <laughs> it seems that that is really on display, that that status that he has, that influence he has, is really on display during World War II. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about some of his activities during that war and what were the issues that he was seeking to address over the course of it. Yeah, Walter oh, White's uh, major friend and, and ally, Eleanor Roosevelt, played a big role in that, especially in the 40s uh, and during her husband's administration, during during the war and after. Um, he, when White became leading advocate, you know, in in New Deal reform circles generally, and of course, this political alliances uh, supporting the New Deal were out there, and, and when White was uh, kind of instrumental in bringing them all together. Now, there were civil rights organizations, there were organized labor organizations, all including all of the unions had their own, you know, agendas uh, feeding in, that fed into the New Deal. There are, so you have the civil rights, the organized labor, and then other social reform organizations like the Council, National Council of Churches, and they were reform organizations. Well, White sort of brought them together, and he was able to do that because they had, uh, they couldn't do it alone, they couldn't sway government alone, but together they produced this liberal coalition that would last for, well, three quarters of a century and become very important for all for labor and for blacks. Uh, with World War II on the horizon, Eleanor uh, arranged for White and his friend, A. Philip Randolph, who was the head of the Sleeping Car Porters Union, a black union primarily, uh, to meet with the president to discuss ending discriminatory uh, hiring practices in defense industries. So in the summer of 1941, uh, the White House uh, sort of summoned Randolph and White, and together they, with Roosevelt, its people, uh, they worked out the terms of Executive Order Number 8802, the famous order that barred employment. It's one of the first uses of it uh, for civil rights purposes. Uh, it barred employment discrimination by companies who held federal contracts and established the Fair Employment Practice Committee to monitor compliance. So this is this is a major uh, advance and uh, white this is this was white's baby really. It they uh, also white uh, fought for uh, more inclusive federal policy toward blacks serving in the military. And he advocated for the suppression of white violence against black troops. Uh, whites, you know, especially from the South, brought their racial attitudes with them into the service. And uh, he 
you know, if they were used to uh, knocking uh, the heads of black people in the South, they did the same in in the service. In 1940, and there are lots of horrendous incidents like this. And in 1944 and 45, Walter White then went on a tour, a months-long tour of bases in England, North Africa, Italy, and uh, after a respite out to the Pacific Theater to investigate the state of race relations among the troops. Uh, He reported his findings, as he always did, uh, this time to General Eisenhower personally, but was unsuccessful in persuading the general to open more opportunities for blacks in the armed forces. During Harry Truman's administration, White exerted even more political influence than when Roosevelt was in office. Uh, and, he, and as previously, the executive secretary uh, fought uh, for de- to desegregate the American military, and especially for an omnibus bill, a uh, civil rights bill that would outlaw the poll tax, lynching, and discrimination in housing and employment. Well, White wrangled a commitment from Truman in 96, or 90, in 1946, uh, which proved pivotal in the course of civil rights for another quarter century. That is when, the, when he uh, got Truman to sign Executive Order 9808, another famous executive order, uh, officially uh, launching the uh, President's Committee on Civil Rights, which was designed to create uh, this uh, an, was designed to be an anti-lynching uh, law, an anti-poll tax bill, a permanent uh, fair employment practice committee into a commission, and to desegregate the military. Uh, his coalition now kept pushing for this, not just White. White kind of set the parameters of this, and then dealing with the leaders of these other organizations in the coalition. And there are about a hundred of them in, by the early 50s. So we're talking about a real national coalition that White put together. Uh, they they pushed this. It failed. Much of it failed because the Southern uh, Southerners in the uh, Senate who filibustered or killed it generally outright. Uh, and so what it came down to then was the Truman in 1948 to seal the black vote were because of the Southerners had bolted into the Dixiecrat Party. Southern Democrats left the party and formed their own Dixiecrat Party. And so to make up for the loss of those votes, Truman needed all the black votes. And White, uh, had, of course, went out and personally uh, pushed for Truman's election. And so in July 40, 1948, uh, before the election, to seal that vote, uh, the president signed Executive Order 9981, embracing equal rights in the military and establishing a presidential committee um, to end 
to explore how to end discrimination in the armed forces. So all this stuff is all wrapped up, and you can imagine how complex this would be to keep all this going and the heads of 100 organizations all moving in one direction because um, some of them wanted to push more for their special interests. And they all had to kind of accommodate. And uh, in the end, uh, somehow through all this mess, civil rights gets, gets pushed forward. It really, Walter White. It really is an impressive achievement. Uh, and and it, you're, you're seeing this, this Walter White as the height of his influence. And, and yet at the same time, as you describe, his personal life is taking this very uh, challenging turn. One that, as you explained, uh, reflects the, the circumstances of, of, of a person who's uh, constantly traveling, not just the nation, but the world, and, and, and who is, uh, you know, circulating with some very different people than the ones that he had known just even a few years previously. Yeah, it did, and it put uh, tremendous pressure on his family life, of course. And uh, he is... Uh, he, Walter White was a very uh, was a charismatic guy in person, and he had a, he had a strong ego. He loved recognition, and uh, he was a celebrity. And his celebrity brought admirers, including women. And the fact that he was he was an impeccable dresser and very you know genial person uh, brought him into contact with all kinds of, of people. And among them, uh, you know, were the most powerful people in the country at the time. But his wife uh, always said later on in an interview said that uh, Walter remembered him as always traveling with beautiful people. Her words, the beautiful people. Evidence suggests that Walter White had uh, several romantic flings before his involvement uh, with the woman. He would eventually divorce his wife uh, and marry in 1949. Uh, she and she and his wife, uh, this that woman was Poppy Cannon, and, and it was Poppy Cannon and Gladys, his wife, were the only two women White ever made long-term commitments to although he had, there's evidence that he had several romantic flings, uh, alliances with women before. And again, again, the guy was gone from home literally more than he was there. And when he was in, in town, he was gone from home more than he was at home. So it's a, you can see where this would go in the long term. White, White had this fling with Poppy Cannon in the 20s, uh, but he called it off because he worried about its effect on his career at the NAACP, what it would look like, and it would give racists a chance to bring up the stereotype of a you know, black man obsessing about sex with white women. And also in 1920s and 30s, I mean, divorce was not an easy thing to obtain nor was it condoned. And then there were the children. 
So these are all complicating factors uh, in his personal life that uh, I'm not sure how it clouded him, his view of his professional life, but it didn't seem, he seemed to be able to compartmentalize these things. Anyway, after World War II, he and Poppy Cannon uh, revived this, uh, revived this uh, affair, uh, but it was complicated then too. I mean, she had been married three times and had one child to each husband. And White was taking a lot of heat from senior leadership at the NAACP, like Wilkins and Thurgood Marshall, uh, did not approve at all. And they were friends, but this was a wedge in their friendship. White also began having heart problems. He had probably three heart attacks before he died. So it's a, uh, you know, he has, he doesn't go home to reduce the pressure. Let me put it that way. He is always under pressure. White tried to find more remunerative employment because this was going to cost him some money if he divorced his wife. Uh, He never did, but in the end, he, he, uh, he asked Gladys for divorce. She went to Mexico and got a Mexican divorce. Uh, they had their their marriage had become well. Her daughter said had become stale. In fact, had become uh, daughter Jane uh, said it had become dysfunctional. And most of the fault probably was with White. As I say, he was gone from home all the time. He discouraged. Gladys from her acting career. She had been an actor in her youth, and he he didn't want her to drive. In other words, I mean, the stale. It was a stale marriage because his picture of the middle class family life was stale. He gallivanted around being important and being stimulated, and Gladys was stuck at home. She and she was bound to be to fall behind. On the other hand, here's Poppy Cannon, who was a public relations executive, had a popular TV show. She wrote cookbooks, was a socialite, the food editor of House Beautiful magazine. And, you know, this, uh, she was uh, someone that White related to, had the great disapproval of his, White's entire family, I might add. White, um, White was America's most prominent African-American leader when he died on March 21, 1955. He started a day like, like any other day, pretty much. Went to the headquarters, uh, went home, and, uh, and within two hours died from a massive heart attack. He was 61 years old. Walter White's funeral was a national affair. More than a thousand people viewed his body when it when it lay in repose in uh, St. Martin's Protestant Episcopal Church in the center of Harlem. President Eisenhower, Vice President Nixon, Senator Hubert Humphrey, Leverett Saltonstall, Paul Douglas, all gave stirring eulogies about White as champion of justice and 
and equality. When he was laid to rest three days later, luminaries you know, from all the worlds that White interacted with, like politics, publishing, entertainment, civil rights, they were there, and there were a crowd of 1,800 of them who packed St. Martin's. Thousands more lined the streets of Harlem to pay their last respects as his funeral cortege passed by. And yet, we know very little about him now. Nobody has, has paid attention to him since, it would seem. Gladys herself. You, you, you actually have anticipated my, my next question, which, which was, you know, how, how that come to be? Because you, you described a, a, you know, an event of, of national attention. You described as you, uh, you know, all these luminaries, all these very powerful people showing up to honor him. And yet today, when we talk about the great civil rights actors of the 20th century, not just, you know, uh, Dr. King and, and, and Malcolm X or, or, or uh, you know, let's talk a bit more about his contemporaries and people like W. Du Bois and so forth. How, how why is it that we've, you know, that, that Walter White's name seems to have dropped out of that conversation or dropped out of that recognition? Yeah, there are. Well, White's legacy has, was nearly extinguished from cultural memory, really. I mean, until a few years ago, because there are a couple of writers that have revived this. Uh, most of them, two, there are only two, one major, one serious biography and one, um, one that focuses on his, uh, his, the racial uh, identity aspects of Walter White. Uh, and those two, in addition to what Dan Grando and I have produced. Uh, so his, and that's very recent. Those are since, what, 2004, one of them, and the other one was four or five years later. Um, so he, he, I've asked this of people, and, and no one, they'll say, even people who, who uh, teach recent American history, for example, I asked a professor the other day who, who now teaches, who has been teaching this for a lot of years, said, well, I remember the name, but I don't remember anything about him. And so this is one of the main reasons we, uh, we were interested in, in working on White, uh, just to sort of revive his impression. And there are a lot of reasons why, uh, why this happened to White. One of them is that following the 1955-56 Montgomery bus boycott, which is only months after White's death, there's a whole new generation of civil rights activists step forward. They're impatient with the NAACP strategy of litigation and lobbying, and they their strategy was was one of direct action. A a new sort of grassroots, bottom-up organizing strategy that replaced the top-down approach that was refined by Walter White. Activists of the 50s and 60s uh, looked elsewhere for leadership. They found it in other people who, for example, in race leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, or theorists like W.E.B. Du Bois, Franz Fanon, and Mahatma Gandhi, or black power advocates, such as Stokely Carmichael and Huey Newton. White's 
emphasis on achieving racial integration by first dismantling the laws and customs that enforced racial segregation was dismissed by the new activists on grounds that the same white power structure that had created segregation was incapable of dismantling it. And then White had been just one man investigating lynchings, and the NWCP board viewed his lobbying, writing, endless speeches, and so on as vital to advancing the cause. But times change, and viewing peaceful demonstrators you know, getting clubbed, blasted by fire hoses, mauled by police dogs, and thrown into paddy wagons, uh, appeared on people's TV every night. White's lesser-known, often unobserved efforts seemed mm, sort of ineffectual. And yet, it was largely that invisible effort in the first half of the 20th century that laid the foundation for the emergence of the modern civil rights movement of the last half of the century. And then, of course, there's White's, uh, well, his whiteness. New generation of activists use blackness as a unifying aspiration. And on that score, Walter White clearly could not stand as a representative man. His belief in complete integration, even assimilation, uh, you know, was a radical position in the first half of the century. But against black ideas of black nationalism of the last half of the century came across as selling out the race. The white was simply not black enough. Reinforcing this view, you know, were his close friendships with prominent whites. Uh, then, of course, people always pointed to his 1949 divorce uh, from his African-American wife of 27 years uh, to marry a white woman was condemned by blacks of that generation as evidence that he wanted to be white. Well, of course, white could have been become white anytime he chose, but he did not. So you see, there's and there's the reason for the questioning thing. But another reason white has been buried in the footnotes is that scholars have relied on white's opponents for their assessment of the man. Roy Wilkins is assistant executive secretary became increasingly resentful of White's unwillingness to step aside and provide him with his long-awaited opportunity. Similarly, the director of the NAACP's legal department, Thurgood Marshall, complained that as executive secretary, White meddled in legal matters he did not understand. And in turf wars within the NAACP, Marshall and Wilkins became her allies uh, to undercut White's influence. And the senior, senior colleague, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, also resented being reined in by his much younger executive secretary he regarded as his intellectual inferior. So people uh, who have written about White sort of dismiss him because the sources they go to are actually uh, White's uh, opponents or even enemies. And so, you know, if you go to those people as your sources, you are not likely to get an 
a fair image of his actual accomplishments. And that's a very formidable range of opponents to uh, be grappling with in, in terms of oh, indeed, influence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. And in some ways, you know, even Thurgood Marshall, I mean, came to eclipse white in, in, in black circles because uh, the NAACP uh, had to change when, during the Eisenhower administration, the NAACP had to change its strategy to emphasize litigation because it no longer had lobbying access in the Republican administration. And Eisenhower brought in both houses uh, of Republicans into both houses of Congress. So they had no lobbying power anymore. That weakened white, elevated Marshall. And uh, this, you know, again, in his waning years, uh, white was already on the... Uh, on the slide out and the culminating, the crowning uh, achievement of this period uh, for the NAACP was, was Marshall's win in the Supreme court in the Brown versus board of education uh, case, you know, that, uh, that said these, that segregated schools were inherently in, inferior and ordered the desegregation of the schools. So this, you know, when in White's last years, he was sort of already on the decline in terms of his influence and even prominence. And and Thurgood Marshall sort of took the ascendancy. But probably White's uh, lasting legacy is least, you know, the one that's least appreciated but most enduring is this civil rights, you know, organized labor, social reform coalition that he nurtured. It's too, it's too complicated to understand in a conversation uh, just because you have so many powerful people um, working in the same direction. And White was sort of the conductor of this, orca, this orchestration. Uh, blacks, I mean, Today, African-Americans are the demographic group most likely to belong to a union. Well, blacks and organized labor are also the close allies in the Democratic Party. And this is a mirror image of the case that was true a century ago when white first came at the NAACP. Then blacks and organized labor were bitter antagonists because blacks were viewed as strike breakers and cheap labor that undercut organized labor. Well, they had to be convinced that the only way they could could uh, serve themselves was to bring blacks, organized blacks, make them union members, and then they wouldn't be strike breakers and cheap labor. So from, from exclusion to inclusion in both the uh, union uh, and uh, in the voting booth, has been the most significant integration in probably in U.S. history. A New Deal coalition that fostered that was fostered by White and lasted so long, even to present day, uh, has a defined political enfranchisement for African Americans. So White liberal, this White liberal coalition, also helped desegregate the armed forces. Uh, 
and and laid down the provisions that would become central in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, you know, outlawing racial discrimination in housing, employment, and voting, and other areas. So Walter White was, you know, probably just on this one effort, which was decades long uh, in the making, uh, is you know, has should have a very prominent place in this, uh, any kind of discussion about civil rights in the United States. Mm. And finally, just let me just say one last thing, and that is that Walter White um, presents an excellent opportunity to discuss the meaning of race in America and to the individual. White was arguably more white than black, but he didn't define himself by his DNA or his pale skin. Discussing why he didn't become white opens the door to insights into really perplexing modern questions about personal identity. And, you know, there are cases now that have been in the press in recent days uh, about. people who are white who claim to be black and who have uh, are charged with uh, uh, co-opting black culture and white you know would I would I'm, I mention this because it would be tempting to put white in that category and I would say there's a very clear distinction why he should not be and that is that he was not raised white but he was raised black. And you know, it's a uh, why he chose to be black. Ben Jealous probably gave the answer to that. Ben Jealous, being a former head of the NAACP, whose father was white. And so a reporter who tried to put him on the spot asked, uh, said, well, why, if you were half black and half white, why do you choose to be black? He said, I choose to be black because white is an exclusive category. Black is an inclusive category. In other words, black community accepted his biraciality. And that's why white was black. Hmm. And rather than whether or not he was just doing that to get ahead and stay ahead in the NAACP. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, Right now, I am uh, taking a break. I have several things I'm interested in, but I'm just going to take a break and a breather and uh, see what my interest, which of my interests become strongest before I jump head in, head over heels again into another research project. (laughs) Oh, I can definitely understand, especially after a uh, project as uh, important as this one. Uh, Ron, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you.